0: You may be seated. Good morning. We are still going through the Gospel of John. We're in the 10th chapter. We talked last week about Jesus being the portal or the watchman in that first sheep pen. We go even more intimately in the second sheep pen because Jesus pronounces himself as I am the door. The door to salvation, the door to eternal life that uh, unless you hear my voice, you will never become my sheep. And the reason you, you are not my sheep is because you can't hear and understand my voice. And as I Was thinking about that this week. I just began to worship him because salvation from beginning to end is from God. It's his doing. And we're blessed, all of us that know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So before we continue in the book of John, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 29. Because that's what Peter by the... Uh, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is, is speaking of here. He says, "...only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified." by your adversaries, and we have plenty of those in this world in this day and age, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you, once again, it has been granted, it has been given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, that comes by his grace, but also to suffer for his sake. We are indeed his sheep the sheep of his pasture. And we'll pick up in chapter 10, verse 22. And we talked about this a little last week. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem around the month of December. And it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And I believe at this time he's musing. He's pacing back and forth, walking around Solomon's portico. And the context, again, is this controversy with the Jewish leaders, the Jewish elite, that seems to occur each time Jesus and his boys, they go to uh, Jerusalem. They have no problem being in Galilee and the other parts of Israel. They are welcomed gladly. But when they go to Jerusalem, when the elite crowd is there, when the know-it-all Jerusalem scholars are there, They give him a hard time. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. We'll see in verse 40 of chapter 10, it says, And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed, there he abode, there he settled down. Because every time he goes to Jerusalem, they are prodding him. They are poking at him. And what they're wanting him to do is to to declare himself as the Messiah. They say, say, if you're the Messiah, say so plainly that we may understand. But the reason they wanted him to plainly make known that, it was to give them a reason to accuse him. So Jesus says in verse 24, then the Jews surrounded him as he's walking through Solomon's portico. It's almost like a pack of wolves. They begin to surround him, encircle him, and he has no way out. And it says, and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, openly, let us know. You see, they were repulsed at this man. At Jesus Christ, this gentle and lowly man. Remember, it was the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication, a time when they really commemorated the national deliverance by the Maccabees. And so as they're looking at this itinerant rabbi, this lowly down-the-earth guy, they're saying, tell us if you're the Messiah, Because you're not doing what we thought the Messiah would do. We thought the Messiah would come and set us free from Roman tyranny and Roman oppression. And every man, every Jew would be under his fig tree and his vine and we would live forever happily after. That's what they were looking for. That's why they did not, in general, surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. Just like most elitists today, they are out of touch with reality. Jesus has come as the Lamb of God who must take away first the sin of the world before he can ever return and then set up his kingdom the second time. It's then when he, the gentle lamb, will be the warrior king when he comes back his second time. So they say, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And that word if, in the Greek, it has three class conditions to it. If, and it is. If, and it might be. And if, and it's not. Well, it's the first class condition that the readers are speaking of here. They could have said, since you are the Christ, tell us plainly, because they knew Jesus was claiming to be deity all the way through the scriptures. He says in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, I've already told you this two months ago. He says, the works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. Every religious Jew understood, if they've ever been to synagogue, that everything that Jesus Christ was doing, uh, opening the eyes of the blind, making the dumb speak, making the lame walk, all of these things pointed to the Messiah that the prophets spoke of, but their eyes were blind. Because once again, the natural man can't discern the things of the Spirit. He says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Jesus basically told them, you can't believe. There's a reason you don't understand because you're not one of my sheep. And in verse 26, I would have expected Jesus, this lowly man, to say, you're not my sheep because you're you do not believe. Belief is the reason they're not sheep. But he said, rather, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. We should shout for joy that we are one of his sheep. We should shout for joy no matter how bad the circumstances or the situation might be on this planet that we've had the greatest gift we could ever fathom, that Jesus Christ would call us to be one of his sheep. We need to keep that in the forefront of our hearts. Not being his sheep, once again, is the, is the reason because they don't believe. And he is speaking of election here. He's speaking of predestination here. Once again, We're all out of the ball game. We're not even on the playing field until the Lord begins to speak and he begins to draw. And once we sense that and once he opens our eyes to who Jesus is, then we have to make a choice. That's what's happening here. I know people, they say all the time, if I could see Jesus walk on the water... If I could see him do a miracle, then I would believe. Well, all of these people who are following him, the crowds and the religious leaders, they've seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle, yet they didn't believe. And the reason you can't believe, he tells them, is because you're not one of my sheep. I had the blessing yesterday to... uh, Share Christ with this young man who did not know the Lord. He had grown up in a Catholic church, and, and 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 he said, I never really knew of Jesus Christ. And so I began to tell him about who Jesus is and what he came to this earth to do. And once again, my name is Amos. I have that type of personality. And so, really. In my whole lifetime, the people I know that truly have come to Christ, that I witnessed to, it's only been, now that it was this second guy, it's only been two people. But as I was sitting across the table and I was sharing about Jesus, I said, now, you know, saying the sinner's prayer or any kind of prayer does not automatically put you in the kingdom of God. You must place your trust in Jesus. You must ask for forgiveness of your sins and turn away from them and then ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and you will be born again. Jeremiah says, if you seek me with your whole heart, then you will be found by me. I said, because at the age of 13, when I walked down the aisle and said, okay, I give my life to you. If I went went outside and, and been hit by a Mack truck, I would have opened my eyes in hell because I wasn't sincere. And so as I'm pushing that, I was, I was pushing that on him more than I was pushing, Jesus can save you, Jesus can save you. And I said, now, do you still want to give your life to Jesus? And by that time, tears were rolling down his eyes. He said, yeah, I know what it means. And so we prayed. And I said, you are one of Jesus' sheep now. You heard his voice. And that's all of grace. And that's what Jesus is telling these religious leaders right here. The reason you you can't understand me, the reason you can't hear me, as of this time anyway, you're not one of my sheep. Verse 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep are constantly, that's the key word, hearing my voice. Once again, this is not religion, but it's about a relationship. Jesus says, I know them intrinsically, yada, the Hebrew word, intimate. I know them, and they continually follow me. He's, he's saying this what is what marks my sheep. They continually hear my voice, and they continually follow me. You can't because you don't hear my voice. That means you're not one of my sheep. And the primary way that we hear his voice, no doubt about it, is the word of God. We're in it. We're learning. of. Sometimes the word, the rhema, just lifts off the page and leaves an imprint in our hearts. Lord, you spoke to me right there. But he's speaking to us every time we open it up and begin to listen to him. So once again, this is not religion. The Latin word relingari to relink, that's what it means. Religion is man's attempt to relink to a holy God. And by the way, that's impossible for man to do. Christianity is the Lord taking on human flesh and coming to live amongst us. And he is the one who relinks so that we might continually hear his voice and that we might continually follow him. What it is, in a nutshell, it's a lifestyle. It's not a Sunday thing. It's a seven-day-of-the-week thing following him. Now, I want you to listen to these next two verses because they're they're very important. Because I know how sheep is because I'm one. And sometimes you might say, we might say, do I always listen to him? Do I always follow him? We can do that. What if I, and I've said this many of times, what if I stumble around and mess up and do the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Spirit? Because we are so prone, and the reason we are so prone, always looking And inspecting our hearts because no one has ever loved us the way Jesus loves us. He loves us. No one has ever come to us and says, I want to give you eternal life with no strings attached. Usually when someone comes to you, there's always strings attached. Jesus says, I come to you and I want to give you eternal life. No one has ever come to us and said, if you accept me and receive me, something changes eternally. Something changes that I give you that I will never, ever take back. That I never go back on my word. This is Jesus Christ. And we can struggle with those things. So verses 28 and 29 really should be a consolation to us. It should be a comfort to the believer. And he says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. That's in his function, that's in his position, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And I'm blown away once again by these statements. He says, I give, and it's in the present present tense, I am constantly giving them eternal life. There's no end to it. If we have received him, if we have Christ in our hearts, we have Eternal life, life eternal. No one can take that away from us. Romans six twenty three tells us, "For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord." First John chapter five verses eleven through thirteen speaks, and it says, "John, and this is his testimony, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this is life is in His Son. He who has the Son." has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you might feel, because feeling changes all the time. Not that you might hope you have eternal life. Not that you might think you have eternal life. But we can know Because the transaction has been made, and God never goes back on his word. And you know, if we think about it, reading the text, it can't be conditional. Does he give to us eternal life? And if it's eternal life, when would he take it away? Does God change his mind? No, he doesn't. If we are born... Again, how can we become unborn? That's just logic. Once again, this is for our consolation, it's for our comfort. And I have to admit, in the scripture, there are many verses that will challenge us, and they should. But here, Jesus is showing himself to be our Savior, our Shepherd. And he's telling us he has given us eternal life. And he says, and they shall never perish. Matter of fact, the Greek reads, eternal life shall not, not perish. A double negative. And we know anything about English. You can't do that. We shall never, ever perish. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out. Of my hand, verse twenty nine. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Kenneth Wheat, he's a, he's in the kingdom now. He was a New Testament Bible scholar, brilliant man. He reads it this way: My Father, who gave them to me, as a permanent gift. That's security. That's comfort. He says that's what it indicates. He says he's greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Our security is not dependent on our strength or our ability to cling to the Lord, and I'm so glad of that. But our security is based on the omnipotent power, the infinite power of God to keep us in his will and on his track to the kingdom of God. And as I was thinking about that, parents who once had small kids or grandparents who take their small kids, if you ever cross the street or say you take them to a Disney on ice and you say, okay, my little granddaughter's name is Sage. I say, okay, Sage, hold my hand. As we cross the street, and if you know anything about little kids, they think they're grown. They always want to snatch their hands away from you. And I said, give me your hand, girl. We're going across the street. Or Disney on ice, because I'm worried about them breaking free, being trampled by the crowd, or going across the street, and she suddenly snatches her hand away from me, and she's hit. Well, our security belongs to God. He's the one who's keeping us. And Jesus is saying, you, if you're my sheep, you are in the center of my hand. No one can ever snatch you out. I love you. I'm never going to let you go, as the song says. That's security. That's comfort. And that's what Jesus is speaking to his sheep right now. Remember, he's just healed the blind man. They've just kicked him out of the synagogue. He's feeling down and lowly because that was the pinnacle of Jewish life in that synagogue. He was ostracized, and now he's in a new sheep pen, and he's happy. Remember, he worshiped the Lord. And I'm sure he's still there, and the Lord says, you don't have to worry about it. You might be kicked out of this sheep pen of Judaism You might not have many friends and they think you're a nobody, but you're in the right sheepfold now. And I've got you. And nothing can separate us from the love of God who's in Christ Jesus. I like how Paul says it. But he goes on to say, first, he says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30. I and my Father are one. And that's neuter. He's saying we are one in essence. We're made out of the same stuff God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They have different offices. And once again, Jesus is pronouncing himself to be deity. That's an easy thing to understand because the next verse reads, verse 31 Then the Jews took up stones. Again, because this is the second or third time to stone him. These are the religious Jews who have encircled around him, about him, who said, Tell us plainly if you are the Son of God. Notice they're not confused about what Jesus is saying, who he says he is. Think about this. These are Jewish scholars. They're Speaking Aramaic or Greek or the Greek language, Jesus, who is the greatest communicator that's ever lived, is speaking to these smart religious scholars and they know exactly what he means by what he's saying. I don't know why everybody else is confused about what Jesus is saying, but then I I understand, because those mainly who are confused are in cults, but no doubt about it, Jesus is saying, I'm God. He says in verse 32, Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? Are you stoning me for healing an infirm man at the pool of Bethesda? Are you stoning me For feeding 5,000 with the barley loaves and two fish, are you stoning me for cleansing lepers? Are you stoning me for casting out demons or making the blind see? For which of these good works are you stoning me for? If they had any kind of humility, they should have blushed by what he just said and turned away. But once again pride is there. The Jews answered him, saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Now stoning, it was the sentence for anyone who blasphemed the name of the Lord. And then they add on to that, and because you being a man, make yourself God. As you read through the Old Testament, every time in the beginning was the word. God created the heavens and the earth, Elohim. But in the context throughout the Old Testament, God is presenting to us his oneness. Hear, O Israel. The Lord thou God, the Lord is one, because after they went away, the Jew went away to Babylon, they never were confused about that again. There's only one God. But in the New Testament, even though it's hidden, and even though now that our eyes are open and we can see Elohim, yeah, that's plural God, and he says it in different areas, but it's not truly revealed until Jesus touched down on this earth a man who is God. And they wrestled with this. And they continue to wrestle with this. But it's the same old song and dance here. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And then remember their their reply, you are not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And then Jesus tells them, before Abraham was, verily, verily, before Abraham was, I'm telling you, I am. So here again, they take up stones to stone him. And they say the reason they are stoning him is because you being a man make yourself God. Now, they're missing something here. And it's a great chasm to what they're missing. They're missing that he was God who became a man. That's entirely something different. They couldn't fathom that. That was preposterous to them. God becoming a man. But he had told them once again in the prologue, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh, there it is, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory Just a common, lowly rabbi. Isaiah says, there was nothing that would get your attention to look at him. Just a common guy. But oh, when you would speak, if you would take a minute to speak to him and carry a conversation with him. And he was just like that tabernacle with all that burlap bag around it. But if you ever got the opportunity, which the three to five million never did, it was only the priest, that's who we are, the priest of God, a royal priesthood. We get to look behind the veil and see all of his glory. That's what attracts us to him. The Bible says he's altogether lovely. Lovely. We should sit with them. We should spend quality time with them. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He tells them in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God? So he comes back to them as a good teacher does. And he is the master teacher He's pointing them always back to Scripture that they should be familiar with and where they are called Elohim in the role of being judges. He says in verse 35, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. Now he's, he's using basic logic here with them. And he, and he begins to quote Psalms 82.6. You are gods. Or Exodus 22 speaks of the same things. If you go to court today and you stand in front of a judge, how should you address him? Your honor. If you want any kind of grace. That's what you better say, your honor. And it's because he's been given a position. He's rendering a decision that's going to affect your life. And here it says in Exodus 22, verse 8 through 9, someone has stole someone's sheep. And it says, if the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges, Elohim, and that's the most common word used for God in the Old Testament. To see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Using there the idea of Elohim as judges in Israel. Jesus quotes once again Psalms 82 verses 1 through 2, and he uses it here. God, that word God is El. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Speaking of the heathen gods, he judges them. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Pause. Think about that. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Amen to that. I said, now he's speaking to his people here. You are gods. You are Elohims. Those who are pronouncing judgment. And all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Jesus says to them, look in your own scriptures. You read, you are God's. Are you condemning me? He's debating with them. Because I say I and the Father are one. I'm the Son of God. Your own scripture, he's telling them, gives those appointed representatives or those with divine commissioning are allowed to use divine titles. Those who have been appointed to God, by God, to be judges in Israel were allowed to use the divine title of God. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. They stood in God's place. It was God's law. It was God's word, and they were to dispense the word of God to the people. That's what he's speaking of here. They were to make judgment among the people, and the judges, once again, were called Elohim. Jesus is using basic logic, using their culture to talk about something they understood, because he loves them. He's wanting them to understand, but once again... They're not his sheep. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, "'Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods?' If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture once again was uh, committed to the Jew, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, "'You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God?' If your own judges say, I am God, why are you condemning me for saying, I am the son of God? Because I've been divinely commissioned and the scripture cannot be broken. And those to whom the scripture was entrusted to, once again, were allowed to use this divine title. He says in verse 37, if I do not do the works of my father do not believe me. If I'm lying to you every sentence I make, if I tell you one thing and do another, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know. Notice, believing comes first. We walk by faith, not by sight. It's not until we believe That God begins to manifest himself to us. That's how it works. Show me and I'll believe. You'll bust hell wide open like that. I'm going to take that leap of faith, that step of faith. I'm going to believe what your word says. And then he opens my eyes because I've put my trust in him. That's how it works. That you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him now let's go back to verse 36 because it says whom the father sanctified it's the only place it's used of Jesus in the Bible and that's very important the Father has set the Son apart once again because we are in Christ we're justified we're sanctified and the scripture tells us we are glorified and there's a sanctification a justification pronounced upon each and every believer. Now, of course, we're still working our sanctification out, but it's been pronounced upon us. Once and for all, when we're saved, we're justified. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection proves that. Sanctification, we know we are growing, and there's a process. But heaven's pronouncement is that we are already sanctified. Because once again, Christ, the hope of glory, is in us. And he is the one the Father has sanctified, Jesus Christ. He set him apart. And the Father looks at us and sees we're also glorified. Because he calls those things that be not as though they were. So already in the kingdom... He sees me in my glorified position here on the earth. That's why when I blow it, I have no problem running back. Lord, forgive me. I always tell you guys about when I was listening to John Corson, and John Corson, he says, oh, Father, please forgive me. That's how Corson speaks. Oh, Father, please forgive me. I've blown it again. And he says, Jesus answered him. He says, I don't recall you blowing it the first time. That's how he works. That's how the scripture is read. We're glorified. So God calls us that we're justified, sanctified, and glorified. Because he is the God who calls things as though they be not as though they were. The God who was tells us we're justified. The God who is tells us we're sanctified. The God who is to come tells us we're glorified. And he sees us in all three of those positions. And it's all because of we're in Christ Jesus. We have eternal life. And Christ is the one the Father has sanctified, set him apart. And because we are in Christ, we are sanctified. Take note of verse 35. He says this, Jesus saying, if he called them God's, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. That's Jesus. The scripture cannot be broken. Broken is luau. It means it can't be loosened. It can't be untied. It can't break. And it's talking about the, a binding, the binding authority of the word of God. That's what we have in our hands. That's what we can entrust and have Complete faith and trust in the Bible. Jesus himself said, the word of God cannot be broken. And that's so important for the churches today, for the true church today. The emergent church, they have did more to move the church towards liberalism in 15 years than the entire liberal movement did in 50 years at the beginning of the century. That's how much damage liberalism has did to the church. And because it's stepping away from the inerrancy of the scriptures and the authority of the word of God, it's stepping away from the blood of atonement of Jesus Christ, the church is trying, they try to be more savvy, they try to be more hip, they try to be more revelant, all relevant. All you have to do is teach the Word, and the, the true sheep will hear, and the true sheep will follow. Jesus says, you don't need all of that. The Word of God cannot be broken, you guys. And Jesus' argument is, in your Scripture, you've said you are God. Jesus says that's binding. If a man is able to use divine titles because he's been commissioned once again by God, how much more will the Son of God be able to use a divine title? Because no doubt he's been commissioned. And Jesus says those words, those verses are binding. That's so important for the church today, the Word of God. Remember when Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 18. He says, for assuredly I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one yard, one jot, or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He's arguing once with this uh, lawyer in Matthew 22. And the lawyer asked him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Because David says this, the Lord said to my Lord. Listen, this is what he said. The Lord said to my Yod, my Lord that little upside-down apostrophe, the smallest Jewish letter you could make, Jesus stopped at that. The Lord said to my yod, my Lord. It's the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Not one yod or one tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. He's placed his word Above his name, because once again in the Hebrew, which is really an Aramaic text, it's all consonant and divide. And to divide that up, you would put those little marks on them, which would make those uh, consonants into vowels. Jesus says there is the whole argument boils down to his messiahship that he's arguing to this Jewish lawyer about one little yard, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Paul does the same thing as he goes through the epistle of the Galatians. He places all of the weight of Jesus being the Messiah on singular or plural. He says in Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed, singular, were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Paul says an entire argument about the Messiah of Israel stands or falls on whether a word is singular or plural. It matters. So important for us to realize. And I said all of that to say this because so many translations, now they have the neuter gender. So many have thousands of changes in them from singular to plural. And the problem with that, and that's very important, whether it's the NIV or the New Living Translation, when they change things from singular to plural, this is what uh, Wayne Grudman book said. In the name of the book, I recommend, and one of these days when I get the library straightened out, I'm going to put it in there, Pastor Brian. Why my choice of the Bible translation is important. Why my choice of the Bible translation is important. He says, when you change those verses from singular to plural, they remove personal responsibility. There it is. That's just the start of it. They remove personal responsibility. When you sit alone with your Bible and the text is speaking directly to you about something in your life that needs to be changed or something in your life that you need to trust Christ on more and exercise faith, or if the text is affirming you about something in your life, when you change that to a plural, it removes the sense of personal responsibility. Jesus says, on this argument of Elohim and God's being judges, the scripture cannot be broken. There is a binding authority that Jesus recognizes in the Word of God, and that's very important. You know, we should be thankful that the Word of God cannot be broken. I know I'm thankful because when the scripture tells me I've been justified, boy, I'm thankful of that. He can't take that back. God doesn't take anything back. I've been sanctified and I'm already glorified. That's what he thinks of me. Now, I hope he thinks that of you guys, but I know he thinks that of me. Why would I want to take that back? He will never take that back. I'm excited about that. And then I love what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. says about the same thing, but he adds a little bit more to it. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor any other created thing. That, That wraps it up right there. I don't have to worry about anything or anyone snatching me out of my father's hand shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in. That's the key. You must be in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you are a believer, you are in his hand, and that's all of the security you will ever need. Jesus says in verse 39, Therefore, they sought again to seize him. They don't like this argument because they're losing here. They're sore losers. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Now, once again, the picture is they, are, they have surrounded him. He's walking on Solomon, in Solomon's portico. They have surrounded him like vicious wolves that they are, and they begin this back and forth, this debate. And he's already said, hey, I'm God. They picked up stones to stone him. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit tells us he escapes out of their sight. That has to be the Father's divine enablement, a miraculous move. Why would the Father do that? Because his hour has not yet come. He's going to take care of him. He's going to be with him until the end. Verse forty tells us, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. So he leaves Jerusalem with all of his hostility, and he goes to the Jordan, probably around the region of Beth- Bethabara or Perea, at, at the beginning where John was having his ministry. At the beginning where, he, where the Holy Spirit ascended on Jesus as a dove and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he just goes down there and he abodes there. He stays there where it's peaceful. And I'm sure he's thinking about this three years of my earthly ministry is almost up. I'm sure he's thinking about I've done your will, Father. I've said everything you wanted me to say. I've done everything you wanted me to do. And I'm sure he can't wait to go home. And I'm sure he's thinking about the birth of the church And in that same spot in Solomon's portico where Peter and James and John would stand up and preach the gospel and over 3,000 and then 5,000 would be saved. He's thinking about all of those things. He's musing over. He's contemplating all of those things. But before any of those things can happen, I have not finished your will yet, Father. And I need your grace. I need your strength to complete it. And so all of those things are going through his head. He's about the hostility was so vicious at this time. Jesus will tell them in chapter 11, Lazarus, my friend, has died, and we need to go and see him. And they said, are you crazy? I'm paraphrasing now. Are you crazy? They want to kill you in Jerusalem. And are you going back there? He says, yeah, I'm going back because he loves Lazarus. But that just shows how much hostility and the tension in the air was in Jerusalem. Then many came to him and said, notice what they say, John performed no sign, not one miracle. They know that. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. How different it was from in Jerusalem. They said, John didn't do any miracles. He has said to the religious leaders many times, Jesus, believe the works that you may know and believe. But they wouldn't do that. The crowd comes together in this area, and they know the hostility that's in Jerusalem, and they say, hey, John didn't perform any signs, but all the things that John spoke about this man was true. And the logic is, once again, if Jesus is doing all of these miracles, certainly what he's saying must be true. Because what John was saying, he didn't perform any miracles. And we believe what he said about the Messiah. Jesus said this about John, we know it. Among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. In fact, he says, the prophets prophesied until John. John was the last Old Testament prophet. Every prophet before John would have loved to been John the Baptist. Why was that? Why would everybody, all those other prophets, Jeremiah, amos ezekiel why abel why would they love to been john the baptist because all of those that came before it was skewed they couldn't make it out plainly they knew a messiah was coming but it was john the baptist who said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world that's him every one of them would have loved to have seen jesus he got to see that. That's why he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets here. John's greatness, once again, it wasn't based on miracles because he didn't do any. Elijah was a man of miracles. Elisha comes on the scene, and at least from the scripture, he doubles Elijah's miracles. But they would have still would have loved to been the one to point to Jesus Christ. They also said this about John, "Behold, I send my messenger before your face." He was known. Remember John the Baptist was bold. He was radical for Jesus Christ. He's the one who said, "What are you, religious leaders, coming out here for? You brutal vipers. Bring forth fruit that shows your repentance." And so they wanted to get rid of John. And finally, in the prison of Macarius, this guy who loved the outdoors, they had him in a dungeon, a dark, dank dungeon. And he calls his disciples to him, remember? And he asks them, hey, I want you to go back and find this guy that I was so fired up about, this Messiah, my first cousin, And ask him, is he the one, or should we look for another? Because my life has been turned upside down. Because I didn't think this would be the procedure when Messiah comes. Everything should be fine when he comes and arrives. But my life, here I am in this dark, dank dungeon. Go ask him, is he the one, or should we look for another? Matthew tells us, chapter 11, verse 4 through 6, Go and tell John, Jesus tells them when they go ask, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And don't forget this part. And blessed is he. Who is not offended because of me? You go tell him that. And then, as they go, Jesus makes sure as they're leaving, they're still in earshot. Who did you come out into the wilderness to see? Someone dressed in fine linen and apparel? No. Did you come out to see a, 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 a reed shaking in the wind? No. And they're walking away, and they stop. I'm sure they stop, and they say, let's see what they're saying, because he's giving them kind of a hard boot right now. No. You didn't come out and see someone in fine linen. You came to see someone who is strong and brave, and there's no one greater. Born of women, there's no one greater Than John the Baptist. And they hear that, and I'm sure after they give John that rebuke. But let me tell you what else he said about you, John. Because John the Baptist had unrealized perceptions of who Jesus would be, unexpected perceptions. And we can do that. Oh, Jesus, I thought when I gave you my life, everything would be a bed of roses. I thought I would have the perfect job, the perfect spouse, the perfect kids, and everything because I gave my life to you, Jesus. Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. I've come, and I've come to give you eternal life, and I've come to give that to you more abundantly. And we spoke of eternal life when he speaks of more abundantly You're going to have that inner joy. You're going to have me to lean on, and I'm going to hold you. And I'm going to, no matter what you go through, you're going to be okay because I'm there for you. And think about the ones who don't know you, don't know me, and and have me to do those things. I'm going to get you home, and you're going to spend an eternity with me. It's not about this life, you guys. Whenever we start thinking about it's about this life, God will show you quickly that it's not. It's about eternal things. And I go back to that young man sitting across the table from me yesterday. He's going to feed you. That's what I told him. He's going to clothe you, and he's going to make sure you have enough. But no matter what you go through, He's going to give you the grace to go through it. And going through all of the heartache and the sadness that you might have to go through in this world, there's going to be an inner joy and an inner peace because the Holy Spirit resides in you. This is not the end. This life, and the worship team can come up, this life, as you go through it, will be good dreams And bad nightmares at times. But what we have to understand, that's all they are. It's not real. We're fixed either in heaven or in hell. We need to be in the sheep pen of Jesus Christ where there's safety. He's the good shepherd. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. David could say, my cup runneth over. I can say that this morning and everything is not good and well, but my cup still runs over because I'm in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and I know you guys are too. Let's pray. Father, you are a good, good father. I don't know what you've seen in me or my brothers and sisters in the sanctuary or those that's watching online. But you called us to an eternal hope in your son, Jesus Christ. Let that be nourishment enough. Let that be satisfying enough. And like I always say, Lord, you've abundantly blessed me and my family. And I know you've abundantly blessed everyone in this sanctuary and those that are watching online that's born again. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you because the God of this world, he likes to allure us with different things. You need this. You're not going to be satisfied until you get that. And what he's trying to do is lead us away from the good Shepherd. That's why I, I'm thankful that I'm not holding your hand, but you're holding mine, and you will gently bring me back to safety, which is right beside you, Lord. We love you. We ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding even more to your love, that we may obey you better. Lord, I pray that you will move. There. I pray for a healing for Joanne Shabelsky, Father. She's Her and Rick, they've been through much. And I pray, Lord, that we will hear a good report. Lord, I pray for wisdom for the doctors, that they will find out exactly what's going on in her body, Father. But until then, Lord, give them grace. Give them that extra measure. You said we have grace upon grace, like the waves that come in on the seashore from the ocean. Grace upon grace, mega grace. Lord, that's what I ask that you will extend to them and to everyone here. Lord, we love you. Keep us in your arms. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.